to you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell, tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon, and a great, very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from trees and uh, strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he, when he was come unto Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Father, I pray for you to lead everything that I say today, that it'll change us, not only touch us, God, but change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, this is one of the biggest days. This was, this was a, uh, a celebratory day. It became a celebratory day for Christianity because we recognize that Jesus fulfilled prophecy by coming into town, riding on a donkey, establishing him as king, and it was powerful. It's, it's still powerful, but what's interesting about people is how quick they can change. See, celebrities learn that, and some of them don't take it so well, because one day they're honored and people scream and holler because you had a top 100 hit or whatever on the pop charts and oh man you are it everywhere you go but it doesn't take long and you've well the one that comes on my uh, is Bill Cosby one of the the greats you remember his stuff back in the 60s Noah and the Ark that's still one of the greatest comedic uh, skits I have ever heard in my life uh, he had uh, Superman in the, in the phone booth. That, that, any of you remember those things? They were hilarious. And everybody honored Bill Cosby. He was one of the greatest, most respected men in Hollywood. And it only took about a day for everything to come tumbling down. And now he becomes one, most, one of the most reviled men in Hollywood. Um, this kind of happened to Jesus. Not for the same reasons, obviously, but it happened to Jesus. Because here we are in the triumphal entry where he comes in and he fulfills the the prophecy in the book of Zechariah and the town is screaming and honoring him and yelling and throwing branches and, 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 and recognizing that he is king and a week later they scream, crucify him. Crucify him. What in the world could have happened? Well, this is something you probably don't know about this day, but history tells us that there was actually two processions that, that day, not just one. Two, Jesus was literally riding into town on a donkey on one side of town and pretty much 180 degrees on the other side of town. Pilate was coming into town as the governor. He was coming into town to celebrate Passover. Well, he wasn't really going to celebrate Passover. It was just the custom that the governor of that province would come in whenever there was a big religious festival of the Jews because it gave them an appearance of that and it kind of told the Jews you know, that, that he was in charge and, and uh, that he respected what they were doing. So he was a 
he was a governor of a region which included not only Judea, but Samaria and, and Eduma, whichever, wherever that was. And it was known to be standard practice that the, the Romans came in and took part in what the Jews were doing here. So I want you to think about this. Jesus is riding into town on a donkey. The governor is coming into town. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine if the governor of Washington, well, most of the people here don't like him, but if, if they did like him in Ione, and the governor of, of Washington was riding into Ione, there would be pomp and circumstance. There would be, there, you would know the governor was coming. And back then, it was far more so than it is now. Now they don't kind of want to tell you a lot of times where the president or the governors are going for security reasons, uh, unless they've really prepared the place. But when a governor came into town, they pulled out all the stops. There was bands playing. There was people screaming and yelling. There was confetti thrown in the air. There was everything. And he comes marching into town and he's got a regiment of soldiers with him and he's got chariots with him and everything is going on. Trumpets are blaring to announce the governor has come into town. And Jesus is riding on a donkey right across town. It's quite a con- contrast of what's going on here. And Pilate is coming in and he's, he's coming and he doesn't even seem to realize, maybe he does, that the Jews are getting to ready to celebrate the fact that they were liberated from an oppressive uh, ruling nation that once ruled them, that nation being Egypt. And they were part of Passover is to celebrate that they were bound, they were, they were under rule, and they were liberated by God. And, and literally they're celebrating what they would like to happen with Rome. Because Rome was holding Israel. Rome was, was occupying them. Rome had occupied the land by defeating the Jews and depositing uh, their king about 80 years before. And uprisings were always happening. The Jews were not ones to just lay down and let things, let them be held captive. They always had a way of wanting to rise up against this oppression. And, and so it was not an odd thing for the Jews to rise up. And it had happened, a major up, uprising had happened in, in, at the death of Herod in 4 B.C. An uprising started in a small town only about five miles away from where Jesus was, was born in Nazareth. And before it was over, the city had burned to the ground and the capital of Galilee had been burned and over 2,000 people were crucified because they had taken part in this uprising that the Jews had, had taken part in. And, and so to pacify the, 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 the rebellion or to, to, to keep the chances of rebellion from happening anymore, the governor would come into town and he would basically establish his rule. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem at this time was meant to send a message to the Jews. He was trying to tell them something to those who might be thinking of plotting another uprising. They're saying, he's saying, you better not rise up against me. You better not rise up against Rome. And it was meant to intimidate the citizens. But this is what the Jews were thinking. They had watched Jesus do miracles for three years. They had watched for over three years as he performed miracles. He had even raised the dead. 
He had turned water into wine. He had given the blind eyesight. He had, he had, he had withered a, a, a fig tree right in front of their eyes. He had healed countless sick. He had done miracle after miracle after miracle right before their eyes. They were, they were thinking, maybe this really is the Messiah. This may be him. They were looking at him as being a prophet at the very least. And very possibly he was king and God. He was the one. They were looking at him. And he, he talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about heaven. The Jews were looking at this and saying, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He's done all these things and now he's riding into town on a donkey on a, uh, with a colt. He's doing all those things. And you know what they were thinking? He's coming to kick the Romans out. This is going to be awesome. He's supposed to come in, uh, and he's supposed to come in humbly and then wipe the Romans out and get them out of town. This is going to be awesome. The kingdom of God is about to be set up. We're going to rule again. Israel's going to be powerful again. Israel's going to be mighty again. Pilate's going to be humbled right before our eyes. They were excited. You think that when they were throwing palm branches and putting their clothes on, on the on the donkey's back, you think they were thinking, oh, the, the Messiah's riding into town to, to set up a heavenly kingdom? They were thinking carnal kingdom. They were thinking they're about to be powerful once again. It even showed in what they yelled. Hosanna unto the son of David. They were thinking we're going back to those days, those glory days of Israel when David was king and we were powerful. And they were excited about that. They knew the story. Zechariah 9, 8 says, And I will defend my house against marauding forces. They knew the Old Testament folks. They knew it. They knew what this prophecy said. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Can you imagine how excited they were seeing that? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt and the foal of a donkey. They were seeing this right before their eyes and they're thinking, this is great. I can't wait to see what I'm about to see. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The war horses from Jerusalem. That very day, the war horses from Jerusalem were in town. That's the very day. They were in town. They were, they were th- I believe they were thinking this. This is awesome. And the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They knew the day was right. See, I, and, and I did this several years ago. I might do this again next year uh, on, on Palm Sunday. But I went through the dates exactly. You can trace the days exactly through Scripture. The very exact day that Jesus was supposed to ride into town. I should say the Messiah was supposed to ride into town. And the average Joe might not have known it, but I guarantee that the ones who are truly students of Scripture knew that was the day, according to Scripture, according to Nehemiah, going all the, that was the very day that the Messiah had to ride to town and he had to ride in on a donkey. They knew that. They were looking and saying, oh, it's all happening and here he comes. We're about to have a fun week this week. We're going to see things take place. I can't wait. They knew the day was right. 
They knew the setting was right. They were right exactly where they were supposed to be in the town of, 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 of Israel, in Jerusalem. The heart of God's people. Everything was right. They knew the circumstances were right. The very one they needed to see brought down was riding into town with him. Pilate was coming into town. It was going to be a clash. God against evil, this is going to be awesome. And they knew the conquering king would ride humbly in on a donkey. They knew that. So everything was being fulfilled exactly as prophecy said. And the people were excited. But they were a little bit misguided. Sounds very familiar today when people like to dig into prophecy and figure out exactly how everything's supposed to unfold before us. It's amazing how many people who call themselves prophecy preachers or prophecy students can get prophecy so different from one another. And yet they're all supposedly got it from God. They heard it directly from God. This is what God told me. And they're wrong. And this is what happened. They sat back. They were ready, they were excited, they were were poised, they were going to see something great take place, and absolutely nothing happened. You want to make somebody angry at you? Don't fulfill their expectations. (laughs) They will get mad. Any husbands relate to that? (laughs) Oh, the husband's being beat all over the place. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no idea, no idea. God touched Boone. Heal his injuries. <laughs> Nothing happened the way that they thought it was supposed to take place. From that moment on, everything went to pieces. They had it exactly in their brain of how it was supposed to, to take place. So what did they see? They saw him pray. They're like, okay, he's praying. This is great. They heard him teach. Oh, he's been doing that this whole time. Come on. When's the swords come out? When's the fight begin? When do we kick him out of town? They saw him eat with his disciples. Whoop-de-doo. He's done that all the time. Come on. They saw him betrayed. Oh, now it's going to happen. The betrayal is happening. Oh, yeah. This is when it's going to be. He's going to go Chuck Norris on him any time. This is great. I can't wait. And then they saw him taken away without a fight. What? What? This wasn't supposed to happen. This is not how it was supposed to go down. Wait a minute. I thought you were powerful. I thought you were God. I thought you were Messiah. What are you doing? Just being led away. They stand trial with his mouth closed and never defend himself. Wait a minute. This is in their hopes and their dreams and their everything that they were so sure was going to happen were dashed right in front of their eyes. Basically, in their eyes, they saw him cower and give up. There's nothing worse than when you think you got your bodyguards around you and the trouble starts and they run the other way. You think, what happened? They were supposed to be, it was supposed to be so powerful. This book I read said, uh, had a line in it I liked. It said, leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate that they can absorb. You can meditate on that one a while. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate that they can absorb. See, by the end of the week, Jesus had disappointed them beyond what they were able to absorb. 
They weren't able to keep up. Jesus had, had dashed their hopes. Even those closest to Him were shaken at the core. This was not supposed to happen. Now, if they'd been listening for the last three, three and a half years, they would have known this is exactly what was supposed to happen. Have you ever noticed that people like to uh, remember what they want to hear? Do you know how many times as a pastor somebody's come up to me and said, I can't believe you said this. And I'm like, I didn't. No, I heard you say it. No, I really didn't. You want to get the tape? I did not say that. They'll get angry at me over something that I supposedly said and I didn't say anything of the sort. Because their ears are tuned a certain way. We have our biases, we have our prejudices, we have our own ideas and our own thoughts. And, and, and they'll say, well, you said this. No, I didn't. And Jesus was trying to tell them. And they'll say, well, you never told us that. Yes, I did. I told you over and over and over. This is exactly what is supposed to happen. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. See, here's the problem that we get into too. Jesus had come with an eternal message. They were still stuck on a temporal message. There's the problem. Jesus was talking about eternity. They were talking about right now. I want it right now. Have you noticed the way the world has meshed eternal and temporal things? It used to be that we preached eternity. Now preachers preach right now. What you're going to get right now. How God's going to bless your life right now. He's going to give you this and give you that right now. Let me tell you something. The gospel isn't necessarily about right now. It is about an eternal perspective. Does that mean that God doesn't touch us now? Sure he does. Does he answer prayer now? Absolutely he does. But the message of the gospel is an eternal message that takes us beyond right now. When everything is going to pieces right now, we stand solid, as we were talking about last week, stand immovable because we know that this thing is not about right now. It's about what I'm going to get, what God is going to do, what He has promised to do in, in, in eternity, not here. This is where that battle was. Jesus was trying to tell them about eternal things, and they were stuck on what they were going to get right at the moment. Intermission. <coughs> ah, yes. Time for round two. They wanted to rule here But Jesus was talking about rulership in his kingdom. They were wanting to to see a king rise up and take power right then. Jesus was saying, it's not about that. It is about me setting up my eternal kingdom, the, the kingdom of God that is not ever going to pass away. They were still focused on the earthly temple. Jesus came in with a message that blew them away when he said, it's not about the earthly temple, it's about an eternal temple where the Jewish temple is no longer valid. What? Yeah, your temple's going to be destroyed. Not one one, uh, uh, brick upon another. Not one. It's going to be brought to the ground. You don't mess with our temple. You want to make them mad? Make the Old Testament Jews mad? You'd start talking about tearing down their temple. That was, that was their, their place. They were religious, theocratic society in a sense. They were, they, that temple was everything to them. 
And Jesus is talking about, well, it's just going to be wiped away. It's going to be knocked down. You're not even going to have it anymore. And they're, they're not understanding that because he was trying to tell them, there's something better than I'm going to introduce. And salvation doesn't come from a building with fancy paintings and all kinds of fancy stuff in it. It comes from a person, and that person is Jesus Christ dying on a cross. That's where our salvation comes from. They didn't get it. They couldn't understand it, and they didn't like it. Jesus' prediction basically put a lot of people out of business. You ever thought about that? When Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring your temple down. That thing's coming to the ground. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. It's going to be flattened out. There was a few people thinking, oh, that's going to be interesting. But there was a whole lot of scribes and Pharisees and priests and chief priests that were thinking, paycheck, not here, no more money. I don't like that. See, the temple was a place of, uh, of where a lot of people gained wealth. Some things never change. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> that temple represented a lot of wealth to a lot of people. They didn't want to see that temple go away. They were getting rich off that temple. People were giving lots of money. They were selling lots of stuff in that place. They didn't like that message. Isn't it ironic that those tasked with teaching about eternal matters and the Messiah were the very ones who were the most resistant to those truths. The very ones. See, and I've said many times, I still believe, I believe absolutely that the Pharisees knew who Jesus was. I, I believe that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys, they knew exactly who He was. They knew He was the Messiah. They knew Scripture too well to not know He was a Messiah. They had to know He was a Messiah. And they had been scouring. See, we look for the return of Christ. They look for the Messiah's uh, uh, appearance. And so they spent an inordinate amount of time studying Scripture to know when the Messiah was going to come, how He was going to come, from what town He was going to come, exactly what this Messiah was going to look like. And then Jesus came. I can't believe for a second that those Pharisees didn't know exactly who he was. But you know what the, he threatened to take from them? Power. Oh, they couldn't stand that. They couldn't stand losing that power. They couldn't stand losing that position and that authority. And even though they knew, you know, Nicodemus sliding in and talking to him by night and saying, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> but even he wanted to sneak in and do it. Jesus Entry into that city that day was not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but it announced a change to the whole religious system of the day. Everything was now different. The old law had been fulfilled. I almost said it had passed away, but it hasn't passed away. The old law has been fulfilled. There is a person who has come to fulfill and make complete that law. Jesus did not do away with the law. He never did away with the law. He became the law. He, be, he fulfilled that law. He was the, the fulfillment of that. He, not only did He do that, though, He exposed the religious leaders for who they really were. Mm. Thank you, God. <laughs> he exposed those religious leaders. He made it clear to everybody that these religious leaders are corrupt and they're after your stuff. If you have a preacher 
who's after your stuff, you don't have a man of God. Who was it? Carter Conlon preached that message called Run for Your Life. I've refer- referenced that here many times. Great message. If you ever want to listen to a message that's one of the most powerful I've ever heard preached, look up Carter Conlon from Times Square Church, and it is called Run for Your Life. And at the end of it, he gives a, 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 a litany of things. He says, if, if that preacher is trying to get into your wallet, Run. If he is trying to tell you that this stuff is about uh, material things and not about the holy things of God, run. And he goes through a whole list. He said, run for your life. Jesus exposed that that day by letting him realize these people that are supposed to be leading you to me are leading you away from me. Those people that are supposed to be giving you the truth of Almighty God are pushing you away from the truth of Almighty God. Then he set up the necessary progress towards the cross and redemption. See, he shook the earth that day. He shook the earth because he came into town as a king. And they screamed and they hollered and they were still thinking flesh and blood. They were still thinking, here comes the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the prophet from from Nazareth, that prophet. They didn't say he was God. They said he was a representative of God. There's a big difference. They still didn't truly have it in their heart who he was. They looked for the Messiah as a way of getting something. When we embrace the Messiah, we better embrace Him not wanting anything out of the deal. We don't get to deal with Him. We don't get to uh, manipulate Him. We don't get to make uh, a negotiation with Him. We don't negotiate salvation, folks. We don't negotiate salvation, You know, we don't say, well, Jesus, I'll come to you if you'll allow me to continue doing this. You know what he's going to say? No. Very simple. Because as soon as you start negotiating, the the negotiation is closed. It's stopped. He says, this is my word and you will live by my word. If you say that you love God and keep not my word, you are a liar. That's what Scripture says. That's why he, he, he made it absolutely clear that he was the king that day. He rode into town opposite the governor. And he had pomp and circumstance, but nothing to the point that the governor had. And then just a few days later, he was put on a cross. He was nailed to a cross by the very same people because they weren't looking at who he truly was. They were looking at who... They wanted him to be. Mm, There are people that come to Jesus that way all the time, even today. This is what I want Jesus to be for me. This is who I want Jesus to be for me. I need this, so I'm going to Jesus. I want that, so I'm looking to Jesus. Jesus says, you don't need or want anything except me. Like a preacher I listen to, he says, if you you want Jesus plus, you're you're not going to get it. It is not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus healing. It's not Jesus plus joy. It's not Jesus plus money. It's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus. And then when you have Jesus, God gives you the rest. He will bless you in other ways. Once you have your sights solely on the, the prize, the whole reason, the purpose of what we're doing. 
So, this day means something to us because it puts us in a spot. Now, I've been studying a little bit, and I really wanted to have a, a whole presentation of how the Jews actually celebrate Passover, how it's done in, in traditional Jewish uh, culture. And it was interesting what I've studied so far, but I didn't feel comf- comfortable yet bringing, bringing it all up because I wanted to know what I was talking about, and this was kind of complicated. But what it does, this Passover is a time of recognizing a couple of things. It recognizes what God brought them through. Everything that they do, the little prayers that they say during the Passover, the, the, the things they eat, everything that they do is to recognize that I was in slavery, but now I'm free. This is where I was, but now I'm not. This is what held me, but now I am free of that. And in fact, I'll share this in closing. One of the things that they do on, during the Passover week, ladies, you'll love this. Uh, for a solid week, the, the wife will clean the house. That's what she does. For a solid week before Passover, she cleans the house from top to bottom, every nook, every cranny. The house is immaculate. And in traditional, uh, traditional Judaism, but it changed a little bit uh, later on, but in traditional Judaism, when the man came in on that final day, he searched the house. He, he did the white glove test. He checked that house. And that house had to be spotless. Absolutely spotless. Ladies are all aiming guns at me right now. What is this about? (laughs) And it was his job to pronounce the house is clean. That was the man's job. Well, I think, I don't know why they changed it. I'm guessing they probably had a couple of ladies that that didn't like it. But (laughs) you like that, don't you? (laughs) While you're single. Anyway. um, It, it, it changed a, a little bit down the line, and they simplified the, the, the tradition where the wife still cleaned all week long. They weren't going to get rid of that. But they still cleaned all week long, from t- cleaned the house from top to bottom, but she purposely left just a little bit of leaven somewhere in the house. If she liked her husband, she put it in the same place she did the, la- the year before so he didn't have to look for it so long. But they would leave just a little bit of leaven in the house purposely, and the husband's job was to find that leaven. And he, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so he had, a, he had a feather and he had a little, uh, I think it was a piece of parchment if I recall, and he would sweep that leaven into that, onto that piece of parchment and he would take it out of the house. See, this signified a couple of things. It signified the fact that, what does, what does Peter tell us? I think it's Peter. Tells us that, might be Timothy, uh, <laughs> the wife... This is, that's her domain. That home is her domain. She is to be the keeper of home, at home. That is her domain. But the responsibility for that home falls on the man. And his job is to make sure that that home is clean. Make sure there's no leaven in that home. There's nothing that defiles that home. That falls on his shoulders. Guys, it falls on your shoulders to make sure that your house is clean, that your house is ready for God, that your house is pleasing to God. That falls on the shoulder of the man. He, that, that was the symbolism that was involved there, is to, to, that the, the, the leaven was moved out of the house and cleansed. See, I think that we've forgotten that in, the, in Passover nowadays. We've forgotten how important it is for a man to sometimes stop and say, is my home clean? 
Is my home acceptable to God? Is it the way it should be? Is there leaven in my house? Is there leaven in my home that should not be here? That falls on our shoulder and that changed. That still falls, that still rests on the shoulders of the man. And I think that's a forgotten point of the Passover week that, that especially American culture, we sometimes forget. God still expects our homes to be clean. He still expects there to be no leaven in our homes. He still expects our home to be, to be uh, ready for Him at any time. And that responsibility ultimately stands on the shoulders of the man. And he is responsible for his home. Can we pray? Would you stand for just a moment? Let's pray. God, as we look to you, as this week is so important, as we realize, we try to grasp, we try to ingest what all is meant, how much meaning there is in this week of Palm Sunday leading up to Resurrection Day, Lord. There's so much. It is so powerful. It's so meaningful. There's so much to it. I ask God that you will help us to recognize who Jesus truly is. Give us an eternal perspective. Give us a perspective on, on the eternal, the things that matter. Because, God, we live in the temporal And we struggle with not looking at everything in the temporal. Help us, God, to not look at it that way. Help us to evaluate our homes this week, especially the men, to look and say, is my family, is my home ready for God? If you were to come this week or this day, God, is my home ready for your return, for you to call us home, Lord? I ask, Father, that you will help us to understand the depth of the meaning of what you're trying to tell us throughout your word in this time of Palm Sunday, this this time of such substance, Lord. I praise you, God, for freedom. And that's what Passover represents is the freedom. I thank you, God, that we are free in Jesus Christ. I praise you. And I ask God that throughout this week, that the Spirit of the Lord will work in the hearts of each one here. Each one of us work in our hearts. Draw us to you. Draw us to you. Teach us your word. Open our eyes to truth. Open our hearts to truth. Teach us your ways. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.